Father, what a great truth that is that for endless days we will sing your praise forever and ever. We can sing that and have confidence in it because of what we celebrate here tonight. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. We are merely captives held in this train. Father, may you increase and may we decrease as we now gather around to hear your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. Welcome, gang, to Epiphany. It's good to be with you here tonight this Easter Sunday. You know, Easter sunrise services are a thing. Uh, Easter sunset services aren't normally a thing. Uh, so thanks for coming out tonight and making time to celebrate Jesus's uh, life with us. Uh, in case you haven't been here before with us, my name is Eric. I'm the pastor here. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke's account of the resurrection. And actually, uh, we're going to be looking at, um, well, sort of the, the, the space where there's a little mystery about the resurrection. Right at the beginning of Luke chapter 24. In this passage, we don't get the appearances yet of Jesus. We just begin to get the rumors about the risen Jesus. So the text reads like this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. And the word for marvel there is wondering. Wondering what had happened. Uh, you ever seen those motivational posters that plaster the walls of, uh, of corporate headquarters and doctor's offices and places like that? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, let me give you an example. No, let me pull that up. Okay, so this, this is an example of a motivational poster. Uh, it says, in case, it's like a sort of a really cool looking fleet of ships all in line. You know, it looks really orderly. And then it says teamwork. And underneath it says, the nice thing about teamwork is that you always have others on your side. So a nice motivational poster as you're walking through the grind of your day, you go, hmm, yes, teamwork, nice, okay. 
Well, of course, because the internet is the internet, it is now flooded with more demotivational posters than motivational posters. And so uh, I figured I'd show you some of those too. What, Don, can we go to the next slide to see what the next poster has to say for our good? So here is a, a large snowball rolling down a hill. It's actually a pretty, pretty big snowball. And the words here, again, are teamwork, but this time it says, a few harmless flakes working together can unleash an avalanche of destruction. <laughs> so that's the demotivational version of teamwork. Next slide, please. Uh, here you have another one. This is about as demotivational as it gets. A picture of the galaxy with the word insignificant, you and everyone you know. Uh, next one, Dom, uh, right along with it. This is a picture of a really detailed universe. Insignificance, nothing you do will ever matter. Nothing ever, period. And then next you have, well, of course, looming death here. You have a goldfish being stalked by a cat. And it just says death is always closer than you think. So imagine seeing that on the wall at work as you're walking out. Oh, that's a stark reminder. You know, it's a demotivational poster. And then finally, what will fix this problem? Well, you know, it's as cynical as it gets, duct tape. Duct tapes will fix the problem of the universe. Death can only be fixed by duct tape. Another way of saying, we can't do anything about it. We're completely in a hot mess in this universe. And that's, yeah, you can go ahead to the next slide, Doug. Now, um, you, you might be wondering why on earth did you come out tonight to this service after seeing all of that demotivation? Uh, but there is a method to the madness here, and the method to the madness is this. Uh, as crass and cynical as things like that can be, the truth is, according to the Apostle Paul, it's actually not that far off if, big if, Christ is not raised from the dead. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the language. It's just what he says. If Christ is not raised, we are to be pitied, and we should simply eat, drink, and be, mer be merry, for tomorrow we die. He says, in fact, uh, if Christ isn't raised, then your life is futile, insignificant, and ultimately nothing really matters. Of course, we can pretend things matter, but it doesn't really matter in the scope of the universe. I imagine that that's somewhat what the disciples felt Sunday morning. When their friends Mary and Joanna and the others went to go put spices around Jesus' body, really just so it wouldn't stink. There was no hint in their minds, there was no thought in their minds that there would be anything else to do. I mean, they, they had seen him really just hours before. It wasn't that long. It was seared into their memory. I mean, they saw him arrested. They saw him go through a fake trial, really. They saw him uh, mocked, and they saw him beaten, and they saw him whipped, scourged mercilessly like an animal. They saw him pinned to a cross, and they saw him dead. They saw him dead in the tomb. And so the, the mood is so dark and depressed that even when these women come back 
with a story of an empty tomb and some angelic figures proclaiming to them that Jesus is risen, these disciples, the founders of the early church, the founders of the church that still exists today, were told thought it was an idle tale. Thought it was made up. They thought these ladies were speaking nonsense. And yet at the same time, here's the little, little spark of hope. Even as it says all the disciples thought it was an idle tale, Peter can't help himself from running to the tomb. Just maybe. The possibility, like what? What if what they're saying is true? What if? Are you willing to ask the same question today? Are you willing to ask the question, what if it really is true? Not, not what do I want to be true? What if it's actually true? What if the New Testament claims are real? What if what the Apostle Paul reports in 1 Corinthians 15 isn't just like sort of religious propaganda, but is actually historical reportage? That first Jesus appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 people at the same time, most of whom were still alive at the time of his writing. What, what, if, what if then he did appear to James and to all the other apostles, and then last of all to Paul on the road to Damascus? What if that is true? What the New Testament is actually claiming is that, that hundreds of, of people actually did see and feel and hear from Jesus of Nazareth after he was clearly pronounced dead and laying in the tomb for three days. And by saying this, I mean, Paul is essentially inviting his readers to go ask any one of the hundreds of people. He even says in parentheses, like most of whom, they're still alive. Go ask them. Go talk to them. Now, if this is not true, this is a mighty risky thing for him to do. Because all it takes is a few of those 500 to say like, all right, let me just be real with you. It, it's not real. It didn't really happen. But Paul's so certain it, it did that he's like, no, no, I could go ahead, talk to him. They'll tell you. They touched him. They felt his wounds. They, they spoke to him. They ate with him. Also, if this whole resurrection thing is made up, I mean, if it is... Uh, if it's something that was made up by the community of the disciples, man, did they go about it in the most ham-fisted, sort of fallacious way ever. I mean, just it's foolish the way they went about it. I, I mean, why would all the Gospels report that it was uh, women who initially discovered the empty tomb? I mean, back in that day, a woman's testimony was not accepted in a court of law. Um, if this group of religious zealots were going to make up a story about a risen Savior, surely they would not have had women be the first ones to come across Jesus' risen person because, again, women's testimony wasn't accepted back then. Of course, we find that absurd today, but back then, if, you were, if you're trying to sell a religion, Peter and John and James, you've got to do better than that. Unless, of course, what if it really was just the fact that these women were the first to discover an empty tomb. 
What about the birth and the rapid expansion and the martyrdom of the early church? I mean, it just makes no sense apart from something big, something dynamic had to have taken place. Something. Something like a resurrection would account for it, at least. I mean, here's the deal. Historically speaking, one day there is no such thing as a church. And then suddenly in the early 30s AD, a group of Jews begins worshiping a man they say is God in the flesh, something frankly unthinkable to Jews and to Greeks, not popular to any uh, group of people back in the ancient world to suggest such a thing. And yet this is what they're doing. They start meeting on Sunday instead of Saturday. Why? They, they insist this is the day that he rose up from the dead. Again, something totally out of line with Jewish thinking at the time. They say that's because that it's a new day. It's a new creation now. There are thousands and thousands of people that come to believe in a very short time. And according to church history, the 11 disciples, with the exception of John, go to a martyr's death for their insistence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, of course, I mean, people will die for a cause they think is true, but may not be all the time. I mean, that, that happens all the time. But what you have to believe with the disciples is that they died for a cause that they knew was false, and they all did it, one after another. So what if this is all true? After all, I mean, it is evidence like this that has led people that, even if they haven't accepted Jesus as Lord, even if they haven't begun to worship him, have come to a place where they said, I think it is historically accurate to suggest that maybe a resurrection happened. There's a great example of this of an uh, Orthodox Jewish scholar named Pincus Lapid, who just looking at all the historical data said that he accepted the resurrection of Jesus not as an invention of the community of disciples, but, quote, as an historical event. Indeed, that, that is why the disciples went from believing it was an idle tale to the truth they'd pin their lives upon. So Christianity has always said from the beginning, don't believe first and foremost because you want it to be true. Believe because it is true. That's what we're claiming out there. That's what the, early, that's what the Christians are saying. We're telling you it really did happen. Also, what if Jesus' prediction about all these things coming to pass really happened? I mean, at first, as the women come across the empty tomb, they're baffled as to what could be going on. John's Gospel even tells us that Mary thought someone had stolen the body. And what do the angels tell them when the angels appear to them? The angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And twice they say, remember his words. Remember what he told you. What did he tell them? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Ah, and they remembered his words. The words the disciples denied and downplayed over and over and over and over again, nevertheless, were the words he did indeed say long before the events took place. I'm going to be arrested and tried, and they're going to kill me, guys, but on the third day, I will rise again. He said it. And each time he talked like this, they would say, no, you're not. That's not happening. Especially Peter. No, Lord, I know. I know what's going on. 
And yet, there's something here for us, too. I mean, the, 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 the truth is, um, the reality is, one of the reasons that we can trust the resurrection story is not just being something that was made up, but actually, like, it's something that's true, is because there is so many prophecies in the Old Testament, in the other, in all the other words, that predict with almost precision what Jesus went through in so many aspects of his life, death, and resurrection. Places like Isaiah 52 and 53, written 700 years or so before the events of Jesus' life, or, or Psalm 22, that talk about a Messiah who will be pierced, pierced for people's transgressions, be crucified. So, what if those words actually aren't just an accident of history? What if it's not a mere coincidence that they happen to mirror the exact things that Jesus went through in his ministry? But what if they actually really are signs of a divine blueprint for the world? And then what if at least some of the stories of all the people that have claimed to have their lives changed by Jesus are actually true? Before Jesus ascends into heaven, we're told he breathes the Spirit upon him and empowers the disciples, declaring their sins are forgiven, and by doing so, transforms them. They go from being this scared, sort of cowardly bunch to this bold crew of people willing to face anybody for the sake of this message. Same thing happens today. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever seen someone who's become a Christian and suddenly their whole life is turned upside down, even to the point where they, they're just, they sort of drive everybody around them nuts because they just, they want to talk about Jesus all the time. I, but it, it, it does happen. Some of you have been there. Some of you may be there right now. And the reason why is because they're like, no, I, I'm telling you, he's real. I experienced something amazing. There's a country singer and songwriter named Chris Christopherson. Anybody ever heard Chris Christopherson before? He's, he's, I mean, he's older, so you have to kind of like, you have to like the country that, you know, talks about losing everything and dying and is miserable. That's that kind of country. That's my jam. But anyhow, so Chris Christopherson, I like the miserable stuff, yeah. Uh, none of the new stuff. None, sorry. None, 0.0% of the new country, sorry. Uh, but, so, getting back on topic, Chris Christopherson uh, didn't really ever go to church. He had had some hits that he had written as a songwriter uh, for people like Johnny Cash and, uh, and other uh, singer Janis Joplin, people like that. Uh, but a friend of his took him to church, and he went sort of reluctantly, and there was a time in the service where they had everybody kneel down. And Chris is, was not a religious guy. He didn't go to church, and so he's like, I don't want to kneel down, but he didn't want to stick out either like a sore thumb because everybody else is kneeling down, so he kneeled down. And the preacher says, I want you to fold your hands, close your eyes, and pray. And so he's like, I don't want to stick out, so folds his hands, closes his eyes. And, uh, and then the preacher says, if anybody here today is feeling lost, would you just raise your hand? And Chris says, he thought to himself, there's no way I'm raising my hand. 
And then he found himself raising his hand. And the preacher said, for those of you who have raised your hand, would you come on up to the front so I can pray with you? And Chris said, there's no way I'm walking up to the front of that sanctuary. And then he found himself walking up to the front. And the preacher said, would you like to accept Jesus? Are you ready to accept Jesus? And Chris said, I, I, I don't know. I don't even know what that means. The preacher began to pray over him. And Chris said, I couldn't explain it. But I felt this forgiveness. This is a direct quote. I felt this forgiveness that I didn't even know I needed at that instant. And I felt like I had been completely transformed from the inside. And what came out of that were the words to what would become his biggest song of his career. It's called Why Me, Lord. For those of you who do like the downer country, it fits right in with that. I mean, it's kind of slow and drags a little bit. I love it. but And it asks the question, why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the blessings you have given? Sure. I know, I know where we're at. We're in New York City, and New York City has got a million stories of people that have had a million experiences, and I know that this is a subjective piece of evidence I'm giving. The fact that a bunch of people, millions and millions upon planet Earth today, claim that they've had their lives transformed by Jesus Christ. I know it's subjective, all right? I get it. But... I'm just asking, what if it's true? I'm asking you to consider, what if, what if what they say is real? Here's the deal. As, as much as I think these points are really significant for understanding why the disciples went from believing it was an idle tale to a historical fact, I, I also just want to acknowledge something that is true that maybe sometimes preachers don't acknowledge, and I'm going to wrap it up right now by acknowledging this. Here's, here's something true. At their core, at the very bottom of their being, yes, the disciples, somewhere inside of them, wanted to believe it could be true, even before they saw the risen Jesus. Yes, they, of course, they were hoping, hoping maybe, maybe, somehow, that this wasn't it. Yes. Don't you, don't you want to believe that this life isn't it? That this isn't a world where an innocent man like Jesus just goes to the dogs and dies forever? I'm not asking about, to so separate the historical from... I'm asking, don't you want to live in a universe where life is the final answer? As a pastor, I have sat with people over the last 12 years of my life so many times grieving a loved one's death. I have heard the words of a young atheist. He was in his early 20s. His brother, a young teenager, had just died in a car accident. 
And when asked what he thought would happen to his brother, in his mind, he thought that his brother probably was just going to continue to live somehow in his favorite childhood hiding spot. I've been invited to officiate funerals for families that steadfastly reject the very concept of resurrection, only to get up and say that their loved one is looking down on us right now. The whole concept of, of life is so deeply embedded in our psyche, it's hard for us to even fathom. Maybe even impossible, I dare say, for us to fathom non-existence. I remember my agnostic grandmother walking out of the hospital with me to the car outside. <clears throat> the air was cool, for California cool anyway. The reason we had been at the hospital was because her son, my Uncle Bob, was dying. And this is the last time that she would ever see him alive. I was uh, in the middle of my first year of seminary being trained on how to comfort people going through things like this. And after what seemed like quite a long while of walking together in silence and her having sort of muffled tears, my grandmother looked at me and said, Eric, it's not supposed to be like this. And all I could think to say at the moment was, you're right, Grandma. Indeed, she is right. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, we can say with great confidence and even boldness to ourselves and to our neighbors, to our friends and foes alike, it's not supposed to be like this. Death is not, emphatically not, the victor. Life is bursting with meaning. Life is significant. Death will not have the final say. But through Jesus Christ, the risen one, life for eternity is what we have to look forward to. You bow me for a word of prayer, Father. Thank you for giving us hope beyond the grave that seems so final and so devastating, and it is. It is devastating. Thank you that it's not the final word. Thank you that it's not the final word. I pray for any of those who are struggling to believe this tonight, that you would give them faith. 
to reach out and accept what you have offered through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray with one voice, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 